If you'll uh, turn now, if you've got the scriptures in your hand or on your phone, to uh, Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 9, where this is the third message out of 13. This is right in the center of Paul's prayer for the Colossians at the beginning of his letter, and he says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all inheritance and patience with joy. Sorry, endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The man was born in 1914 in Middletown, Pennsylvania. By the time he was 30, he knew every ancient Semitic language. He was on the board of the American Bible Society and the United Bible Society. In 1952, he's lead editor for a new translation of the Bible called the Revised Standard Version. Throughout his life, he was responsible for the translation of four other Bible accounts. Throughout his life, he wrote 26 books and incalculable articles. The New York Times said of him, he is one of the foremost scholars of the 20th century. And yet, when I sat in his class or met with him one-on-one as he was my advisor, It wasn't his scholarship that impressed me. It was his prayers. I'll never forget what he'd do. He'd stand before a lecture hall of 200 people. And he'd say, let's pray. And he would always begin the same way. Oh, Lord, our God. We give you humble and hearty thanks. And as I listened to his prayers, I felt as though I was in his closet. He talked to the Lord as if he really knew him. There's a guy who lives not far from here I've known for 40 years. He retired at 52. He was a titan of industry, and yet for most of his life, he lived for three things, money, sex, and power. And then he was ambushed by Jesus. And now when we get together, we talk about a lot of things, but there's one thing I can't wait to do, and that's to listen to him pray. Because it's always... slow 
and it's always humble. And when I pray with Gordon, he sometimes says, you pray. I said, no, you pray. Somebody said you can learn a lot about somebody by the way they live, but you can learn more about them by the way they pray. When Abraham Lincoln was president, there was a story that went around Washington that he loved. Two women were talking. One said, you know, I think the Confederacy is going to win because Jefferson Davis is a praying man. The other said, yes, but Lincoln prays too. And the first said, yes, but when Lincoln prays, God thinks he's joking. Lincoln loved that story because of his humility. Last week, Henry said, gratitude is a sign of our understanding of God's sovereignty. In other words, you're not grateful to someone unless you know that they're responsible. That's not just true of gratitude, it's true of prayer too. I mean, if you think you're a self-made man or woman, if you think that everything that you've got is because of you, then why pray? In all the New Testament, there's one person's prayers who recorded more than any other, and that, as Henry said, is Paul. You know, that shouldn't come as any surprise. Remember in Acts chapter 9, after the Lord blinds him on the road to Damascus, he comes to Ananias and he says, I want you to go to the street called Straight, and there you will meet a man who is Saul of Tarsus, and then he adds this, and he is praying. I bet you pray after you're blind for three days. I mean, you're going to beat up Christians and all of a sudden Jesus encounters you and says, what are you doing? You have a controversy with me. But it's not the frequency of Paul's prayers that impress. It's the intensity of them. Because when Paul prays, he prays honestly from his heart. Martin Luther once said, when you pray, let your words be few and your thoughts and affections be many. That's exactly what we see in today's prayer. There's a lot here in this prayer. Let's talk about three things. First, notice, if you will, the pattern of prayer. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, in the ESV, it begins that verse with, and so, but another way to translate it is, for this cause. In other words, what he's saying in verse 9 and the following verses is linked to what he said in the previous verses. And remember what Henry talked about last week. Paul begins this prayer with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Remember what he thanks the Lord for? Three things. For their trust in God their love for each other, and for the hope that they know that they have in heaven. What Paul is saying is, Lord, I am grateful for what I see you do, do, are doing in the Colossian lives. He's grateful for all of those things. And so as a result of seeing God working in them, he's led to pray. This week, a friend and I are going to go to Florida to play golf and raise money. 
And one of the places we're playing is a course that is so exclusive that it's almost impossible to get on. You say, how are you getting on? Because we know a guy. This guy said, you know, I'll call down there and make sure you can play. And so he did. He called down and he said, I know the rules. I know that you can have no unaccompanied guest. I know you have to play with a member. I'm not going to be there. They're playing. The bro says, sir, there is a rule. He said, listen to me. I'm a founder of this club. I paid my dues for years. I'm one of the guys that makes this place happen. They are going to play. And after a few other choice words, the pro said, we'll see him on the tee on Friday at 8 o'clock. You know why he did it for us? Because for the past three years, he has given tens of thousands of dollars to the ministry of the gospel. And every time he does it, he says, you boys let me know what else I can do for you. And we did. That's exactly what Paul's doing. You think of most of your prayers. If they're anything like mine, it's as if we're convincing God to get in the game. Lord, we need you to get off of your cosmic duff and get busy. We come to him as if we have to get him up to speed and tell him to get cracking. But not Paul. You know what Paul does? He sees where God is at work. And then he prays in agreement with what God is doing. In other words, it's God's work that stimulates his prayers. He's not praying to an inert God. He's praying to a busy God who's very involved. He doesn't even know these Colossians. And yet he's heard what the Lord has been doing in their life. His prayer is not only stimulated by God's work, they're sustained by the power and person of the Holy Spirit. Remember last week when we read as a companion text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, there Paul is saying, I am thankful to you, O Lord, that when the gospel came to the Thessalonians, it didn't just come in word, it came in power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm rejoicing in the fact that the word wasn't just in their head, but the Holy Spirit drove the truth of the word down into their heart and their soul. The same thing he says to the Corinthians when he says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see what Paul is praying here? The Lord has put the Colossians on his heart. And he knows that the reason he can't get away from this feeling that he needs to lift the Colossians in prayer is because he knows the Holy Spirit is convicting them to pray for them, and so he knows something else. If the Holy Spirit is convicting him to pray for people in whom God's already at work, then God intends to do something marvelous in their lives. You know what Charles Spurgeon once said? A man can deliver the Word, but only the Holy Spirit can give him understanding. Only the Holy Spirit can apply that word to our lives. Only He can use this written word to transform us. So look what Paul is doing. He knows the Holy Spirit is burdening his heart for the Colossians. He knows that the Father is already at work in them. 
So he prays in agreement with what the Holy Spirit has put on his life. So his prayer is stimulated by God's activity. It's sustained by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, it's very specific. Look what he prays for them. You can't find a God-blessed grandmother, God-blessed grandfather in this prayer. He doesn't talk about their gallbladder or their heart. There's nothing medical. There's nothing financial. All there is, is this. That you might be filled with all the wisdom of God. He asks that they might get godly wisdom. And a deeper understanding of who God is and what he's done for them. You know, years ago, I was talking to a guy about the next preaching series. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe, just maybe, going back and preaching the cross again. He said, the cross? You've covered that already. I'm not sure what I said to him. (laughs) But you know something? You can mine the depths of algebra and master it. I never did. You can know everything there is to know about nuclear fusion or fission. You can know everything there is to know about photosynthesis. But do you believe for one second that you can understand all of the depths of what it was for God's own Son to be put to death by the Heavenly Father for you? When it comes to the Son of God dying on the cross at the hands of the Heavenly Father, how do you plumb the depths of that? But that's what Paul's praying for them. That they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom. That they might have an increasing knowledge and understanding of who He is and what He's done. You know what wisdom is? Maybe the best definition I've ever read is from Jonathan Edwards. He said, it is the settled condition of a mind that is controlled by the Spirit of God. What is that settled condition? It is the conviction that what God did for you on the cross is yours. He's asking, Paul is, that they might understand everything of who Christ is and what He has done for them and that it might affect every aspect of their life. In short, what he's asking the Lord to do is enable these Colossians to have the eyes of God. That everything that comes into their life is seen through the filter of divine sovereignty. Second, notice not only the pattern of prayer, notice the practice of it. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, here bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Now there are a lot of people who have written a lot on this. Many opinions. Some say it means purity of life. Others say it means 
an ability to live in rectitude and complete compliance with the law of God. Well, Paul, before he knew Christ, did a lot of that. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. He wasn't engaging in oriental hyperbole when he said it. So what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? You know, I think he answers that in Philippians 2. When he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, what mind was that? A mind that overflowed in humility. A mind that doesn't think less of yourself. A mind that doesn't think of you at all. You know, every once in a while I hear from somebody and they'll say something like this. Now, it's not about me, but... Then they'll tell me why it's all about them. And I do that. You do that too. To be humble of mind means that you're not even thinking of you. And that is never the product of determination. It's the product of transformation. Somebody said, the fruit is not the root. The root is the gospel. The root is what Jesus has done for us. The fruit of that is love, joy, peace, patience, and the like. That's what Jesus means when he says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. He's talking about a regular, daily exposure to Him and His work. And what the Holy Spirit does with that kind of exposure is He begins to make you more and more like Him. You know what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says? He says, every time I hear the gospel in my heart, I want to become a Christian all over again. Every time I hear the gospel in my heart... It's like I want to be a Christian all over again. But notice what Paul says. Walking in a manner worthy of Him, so that you may be fully pleasing to Him. You know what that word pleasing means? It literally means to cringe before a master. It means to be totally submitted to a master. Now, remember who this is who's praying this. This is a guy who, for most of his life, never stopped thinking of himself. I mean, that's what Pharisees did. They knew the law. How am I measuring up? How am I doing? Did I have a 40% day? Did I have a 90% day? Did I get 100% today? Did I conform completely? What about me? All the stuff in my life, have I called out enough? That's the life Paul lived, as to the law, blameless. He submitted to no one. But when the master of the universe blinded him, he gave him only eyes for him. That's why every time Paul writes a letter, he always begins it the same way. Here is who Jesus is. Here's what He's done for you. Don't you dare take your eyes off Him. And then we move to application. It's never under your power. You better buck up. You better do what I tell you to do. 
It's always by the power of Christ in you. The things of the world become strangely dim, not because you said, I want them to, the lights to go out, but because you have a different focus. You find those things that beset you beginning to fall away. And then third, notice the praise. Look at verses 11 and 12. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see what Paul's doing here? He's giving them the reason he's praying. And the reason is he wants them to be patiently enduring. He's asking the Lord for things that will enable them to endure with patience. One of the most stunning verses for me in the whole of the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible, is from the letter to the Hebrews where the writer says, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. What was that joy? We talked about it three years ago in our study of Hebrews. You know what that joy was? His inheritance. For the inheritance, the joy of the inheritance that was set before him, he endured the cross. What is that inheritance? It's his bride, it's his church. It's you and me. In other words, Jesus endured the cross because He knew the goal. He knew what He would get. He knew what was His. And in all of human history, He's the only person who ever earned His inheritance. You know, when you get your inheritance, you haven't earned it. By definition, inheritance is something you don't earn. And the amazing thing about Jesus, He's the only one that in. in earned his inheritance, and then he gave us everything that he earned. You say, if that's his inheritance, what's ours? It's him. He's our inheritance. Do you know the joy of knowing that one day all the crap in your life will be gone. One day, all of the failures, all of the Romans 7 stuff, the do-do text, there are things that I do that I don't want to do, and there's things that I don't do that I want to do. Do, do, do. One day, we'll be mesmerized by all of His doing. You know, there's a girl I know who's a freshman in college, second semester. A few years ago, her uncle died and left her everything he had. And he had a lot. He has all of this stuff, this money that he left to her, but she doesn't know it yet. No one's told her. You know why? Her father told me, I'm not going to tell her until she's much older, gets through school, gets a job. Why? Because I don't want it to go to her head. I don't want it to change her life. 
I don't want her to be defined by this inheritance. I don't want her to rest on her laurels because my brother has given her everything she could ever want. How different from Paul. You see what he's praying here? That your inheritance might go to your head. That your life might be changed by the certain knowledge of the inheritance that you have in Jesus. What Paul is saying is, your elder brother has died. And he's risen again. He spent his entire life amassing a fortune for you. It's yours. Let it go to your head. Let it change your life. Let his monumental grace mesmerize you. Let the implications of Jesus' finished work sink deeply into your head and your heart and your soul and it'll change you. You'll never be the same. That's the purpose of his prayer. That's the purpose of this table. To remind us that everything we ever need in this life and the next Jesus has given us.